If you need a Bible, if you'd like to have one, I want to encourage you to follow along today. Uh, we have a few up front uh, here. Um, we're going to be uh, in, in pretty much in one, in one place. I know I'm going to shock you. I'm not going to make you turn all through Scripture today. What? <laughs> um, the Lord has been placing something specific on my heart over the last um, a number of months. Um, well, uh, obviously, as we've, we've kind of been led to prepare uh, for a, a married couple's uh, thing, and as I've been preparing for this weekend, um, God has placed upon my heart the importance of the relationships in the church, and I want to just share some things with you to begin with. Uh, one of the things that um, I love doing, I, I try to, to read other books that would help um, just strengthen my, my faith and encourage me and um, challenge me in different areas. This is a book that came out in 2002. It's been around for a while now. But when it landed on the scene, uh, it made quite a stir. stir. Maybe you've heard of it. It's by Paul David Tripp called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. People in need of change helping people in need of change. A few of us are reading it. Uh, Steve and I as well are reading this book in the uh, church and just trying to challenge ourselves um, about what, what is church. And I'm just going to read you a little quote from this book to kind of set up what we're going to look at today. Um, Paul David Tripp is uh, a pastor. He is a, uh, a teacher he is a biblical counselor as well. The church is full of people dealing with the effects of sin, people who are not fully formed into the image of Jesus Christ. The church is full of people who have lost their way and don't even know it, who haven't made a connection between their daily problems and the transforming grace of Christ. And everywhere you look, you will find couples who are struggling to love, parents who are struggling to be patient children who are attracted to temptation, and friends who battle the disappointments of imperfect relationships. This is 100% of the church. The church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their trust in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he has designed. The church is messy and inefficient, but it is God's wonderful mess, the place where he radically transforms hearts and lives. Um, I believe that to be the case. Um, the church is full of imperfect people. We are the church, and it can be a messy thing as we come alongside one another, encouraging uh, one another to love uh, and good deeds. And I thought what we do today is we look at the letter by Paul to the church in Ephesus. If you turn to the book of Ephesians with me, we're going to be looking at a particular passage in chapter 4, but I want to do it justice and start at chapter 1 just to do a little review uh, here. But as you're turning there, the letter to the Ephesians has been called the crown of St. Paul's writings, the queen of the epistles. Um, one of the previous presidents of Princeton Theological Seminary said it is the distilled essence of the Christian religion, the most authoritative and most consummate compendium of our holy Christian faith. And get this, what we read here is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. And that's my prayer for you today. I pray that the truth that we look at today will be something that sings into your heart today. Um, Paul writes this to a church in the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It's a, a busy uh, commercial center, educational center, um, political center. It contained the magnificent temple to Diana, uh, Artemis, the goddess. And so you can imagine a church that is established in that kind of a, an area is going to be confronting all kinds of things. You're going to be confronting massive false religion. You're going to be uh, confronting Greek philosophy, which is completely uh, counter to Christian philosophy and understanding. And so Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians to clarify church. What is, what is it? Well, what is church? How do, you, uh, how do you enter it? How does one become part of it? And most importantly, what does one do in it? How do you behave in the church? What's the purpose of the church? That is the letter to the Ephesians. Um, it is God's new um, society. It is a letter that promises a community in a world of disunity, and it's a fabulous letter. 
And just to kind of overview, so we kind of know the context of what Paul is talking about, I'm just going to kind of fly through some stuff in Ephesians chapter 1, and I just want you to follow along. He's going to begin by reminding the church how they got there in the first place. How did you become part of the church? This is a reminder for us. Did you, did you, is it because you looked up Calvary Chapel Cardiff on the website and said, I'm going to become part of the church? Or does it start somewhere else? Well, Paul tells us here, look at verse uh, four. There's all of these in him phrases, meaning in Jesus phrases. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. How did you become part of the church? He chose you. In him, he adopted you. He predestined you to be part of this uh, family. And all of that is to the praise of the glory of his grace. We have nothing to do with it. This is all in him. Verse 7, in him we have redemption, Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. We have been redeemed. He has purchased us, and therefore we have received forgiveness of sins and are part of the church. Uh, Look down to verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Also, verse 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed. You were given something. And verse 14, that tells us it's the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You were redeemed in the sense that you have received forgiveness of sins, but this purchased possession has, a, has a, a further purchase taking place, right? One day I will be uh, glorified uh, with him. And Paul's writing all of these things to remind uh, the church of, of, of how they got there in the first place. And what are the spiritual privileges you have with that? You are adopted as, as children of God. You have received forgiveness of sins. You've been redeemed. You have an inheritance in the heaven and the Holy Spirit is proof of that. He lives inside of you. He's the guarantee. He's the seal of the promise that he's made uh, to you. And in chapter 2, he famously tells us how salvation came about by grace through faith in verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You were saved by grace, and the channel was through faith. But faith wasn't of yourself. No, no, that was a gift of God. Why? So that you wouldn't boast about it. So even the faith that we have in Christ is something given uh, to us. Everything is in him. Do you see this? It's in Christ. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is a massive statement. Works have nothing to do with uh, how we got into the church, the body of Christ. But once we have become part of the body of Christ, works have everything to do with it. Christ has planned in eternity past that his people, his holy people, would be a church who would walk in this obedience of good works that he prepared beforehand. What does that look like? That's what Paul's going to talk about. You have to keep in mind, too, that Paul is talking to a very diverse church. It's full of Gentiles and Jews. There couldn't be more opposite in there, right? Uh, the Jews were very completely different uh, than, than all of the Gentiles coming from all kinds of different backgrounds as well. And he begins to kind of show uh, what took place when these two or multiple groups kind of merged into to one. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, he's speaking to them, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, meaning the Jews call you guys the uncircumcision, right? You're not like us. You're the, you're the uncircumcised. He, the Gentiles... That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. (laughs) He's reminding them, you didn't have any of the stuff Israel had. You you didn't have the covenants of promise. You you, you didn't have uh, any kind of hope and you didn't have God. But Israel had all those things. But then look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both, 
one. And it's broken down the middle wall of separation. There literally was a wall of separation in the temple. You literally had the court of Gentiles and a small little wall, and the Gentiles did not cross it. In fact, there's an ancient Greek temple inscription written on it. It says this, whoever is captured will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. You cross that, you die, and you have yourself to blame. Oh, there was a, a wall of hostility. Make no mistake about it. But what happens here is Jesus said he, he broke that wall down, not that, that just that physical wall, but the spiritual one, the social one, the cultural one. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. That is an incredible statement, people. Incredible statement. He says, you, you both came from diverse uh, backgrounds, different cultures, different societies, uh, different traditions, and he broke all those things down. They don't exist anymore. He made peace between the two, and from the two became one new man, a whole new person. Verse 16, that he might reconcile both to God. Jesus took both and reconciled them to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and to those who were near, the Jews. The Jews were just as much in need of Christ as were those who were far off, the Gentiles. He preached to both. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And then he finishes off this section by all these great analogies of what the church is. Therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but members, I'm sorry, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're citizens. We're, we're members of a household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. All these citizens of a new, uh, of a new um, citizenship in heaven, all these uh, members of one household, all these little pieces of, of stone and brick and mortar that make up the building they all look different. They all have different sizes and shapes, but they all make up one unit. They all make up one a structure. And God has a purpose for that one, doesn't he? Chapter 3, chapter three Paul's kind of regressed a little bit and talk about his own uh, ministry. The mystery that the Gentiles would be introduced in, into this plan of salvation was a mystery in the Old Testament. Paul had the ministry uh, to the Gentiles. And so he kind of talks about that a little bit. I'm not going to take the time to go into chapter 3, but I, I want to highlight a bit of the beginning of, of chapter 4. If you look at chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, because all these things are true, all right, because he's, he's broken them all down, he's made one new man from the two, because you're all in Christ and you have been adopted and you are his building and all those things are true, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. You get that? There's a whole lot of one, one, ones, and it's a whole lot of all, 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 <laughs> Right? So there's the unity, but there's the diversity there as well. We are all unique. We are all different, but we all have come together to be one. What I want to make absolutely clear before we get into the meat of what we're going to look at today is that what I'm going to share with you today is not something coming from an American perspective, that this is the way we do things in America or in the American church or American culture. Or it's not the way you th do things in the British church or the British culture because you're not British and I'm not American. Paul has just said it. All those things have been broken down. You're one new man. And I have a feeling sometimes we tend to blow things off and brush them to the side because we say, well, culture would dictate this and this. A culture would say this and this. And I would say, you don't have that kind of culture. You're a new citizen. And so culture has nothing to do with it. So it doesn't matter how awkward you might feel. In the culture we live in, we have a new culture, and we're called to this culture, this culture of the new man, the new society. It's 
church. And Paul is going to tell us how to do church. So let's look at this together uh, today. In chapter 4, he's going to begin to talk about the gifts that have been given the church and the purpose for them. If you look at verse 11, he says this. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. We have all these giftings in the church, and they're all there. They have all these abilities. Why? Verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying the body of Christ. There it is. Threefold. Why are those gifts present? That the, the saints might be equipped. We might be ready for what? The work of the ministry. What's that? Well, that's the purpose of that, is to build up the body, edify the body of Christ. But it's the work of the ministry that I want to talk about. A lot of times we talk about the work of the ministry, and we might think, oh yeah, this is the ministry. Uh, Kevin is doing the ministry because he's teaching from up front. Uh, the teachers in Sunday school are doing the ministry because they're teaching. Uh, people that would be serving coffee are doing the ministry because they're serving coffee. Those are all part of it. That's part of it. But what did, just, what did Paul just say? We're, we're all these individual members, and we come in, and all of us are in here, and all of us have been equipped. We've all been equipped that we might work to build one another up. It's for the edifying of the body. For what? Verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's talking about maturity. Until you become mature men and women, <laughs> right? Maturity. Because why? Well, look at verse 14. That we should no longer be like children. When we come into the church, we are like children. We know enough to be saved. We understand adoption and redemption, forgiveness of sins. But what more do we really know? We're like, we're really like children. And we can be tossed to and fro, he says, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. The word doctrine there is, is the word for teaching. It's didaskalia. It's instruction. We come into the church, and there's relationships in the church, aren't there? Right? I don't just see Sunday school teachers and, and pastors and musicians and stuff, but I see husbands. And I see wives. I see mothers and daughters and fathers and sons. I see brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and grandparents and grandchildren. I see relationships. And relationships are messy things. And it's the relationships, these relationships, this is the church. And if we want to edify and build up this, then how do we do that? And that's what I want to look at today. Paul tells us the key to that in verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. I do pray today that you would be with us. Lord, this is your word. It's your truth. It's not mine, and I just pray that you would guide us into truth by your spirit. Lord, we want to be um, the church that you've called us to be, the church you've designed. We want to walk in the works that you have prepared for us beforehand. And so I just pray that you would show us how to do that for your glory, for your name's sake. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. A truth there literally means to teach the truth. Um, we um, often, uh, oftentimes, I think, uh, relegate verses like this to simply just uh, false teaching, meaning false doctrine. False doctrine on things like, well, uh, you know, about Jesus and his incarnation and God and his um, omniscience and, and all the things that are necessary for salvation, the things we have to understand and know. I want you to know something. Paul is not talking about that stuff here. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the stuff that we tell each other in church. When we come to church, we're little children, and we all have relationships, and we all counsel one another, don't we? You share things with one another. You teach one another. 
Let me give you these examples. You have, uh, you have uh, women in churches that will tell uh, uh, another lady who is struggling in her marriage and say, well, you're not happy. Well, you should, be, you, should, you should get out of that marriage. She has just instructed her, has she not? She's just taught her, but from a very worldly perspective and in a way that would harm uh, the church. It is that kind of uh, teaching that Paul is talking about here that we're tossed to and fro about every kind of teaching, and it's all by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But what he wants us to do is to speak truth, teach truth, and do it in a loving way. And we're going to look at that here in a second. Chapter, uh, verses 17 to 24, he explains what he means, but in a broad way. He says, there's a new man. You're the new man. And the new man has to be put on because you've got to put off the old. Look at verse 22. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, the old is still growing, isn't it? The old man still grows, but it grows what? Corrupt. It grows more and more corrupt according to deceitful lust. But the new man was created according to God in true righteousness, and that is the man that has to grow up in all things from verse 15. And so as we look at our passage today, we're going to specifically look at verses 25 to 32. Paul moves from that broad idea to the very nitty-gritty specifics, and this is where it gets messy and dirty. This is where we have to get our hands uh, dirty. These are four deadly enemies to church growth. If we're to speak truth in love, these are the things that keep us from doing just that. The first is deceit. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The word there, pseudos, literally means uh, intentional falsehood. The intent to deceive one another. Now remember, our goal, Paul has just said, is to speak truth in love. You can only speak truth in love in certain situations when you know there is truth that is needed to be spoken. And many times we come to church and we put on a very false front. Everything looks great here. Everything looks happy here. The couple couldn't be the more, more shining couple. The children couldn't be better, and everything looks great, and you do the small talk. Hey, how, how's your week? Oh, it's good. What'd you do? Oh, I worked. Right? We just have the small talk. Listen, I'm just going to be, I'm being honest with you guys today. This is how, this is how, this is church. This is what we do. And the reason is because if there were real problems there, real difficulties there, we wouldn't let that known. I, I don't want people knowing my messy stuff. I don't want to, pe- so I put on a false front. I deceive. This is what he's talking about. I don't want people interfering. And we do this because we compartmentalize our life. We say, that's the domestic. That's the area that is out here, and it's outside of church. It has no place here. But aren't you the church? We're the church. And Paul says, you need to put away that lying and let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. He is quoting Zechariah eight sixteen. Let me read it for you. I think I have it on the screen. These are the things you should do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates. Forget these things. Truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor, and do not love a false oath, for all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. We are called to speak truth. We're called to give judgment on these things. And in my judgment, if there's true difficulty going on, I have the responsibility to insert myself in that situation. I know you're like, oh, but now you're prying. Now you're prying. Hold on a second. That's an outside thing. It doesn't affect the church. Let me run you through a scenario. I've been here, right? The same happy couple. They're putting on a great front. Everyone, everything looks great. They're great in ministry, right? They're running, they're running a youth ministry. They're like the energetic, hip couple. Everyone loves them. Their house is the hub of activity. Kids go there for all the parties and the game nights and all of those things, and everything is, it could not be better. By the inside, marriage is in turmoil. No clue. Or maybe they're little signs. Maybe they're little hints. I saw one like this. And I just chalked those things up to the normal marital spats that you just assume, well, maybe they'll get the, 
kind of get over that, and they'll, they'll figure it out. I don't want to interfere with that kind of thing. But I saw it more, and I saw it more. And at some point, it should occur to me that, you know, I probably should take my brother aside and go, is there something going on? How can I help you with this? But we don't do that, do we? We go, that's, that's not my realm. I don't want to touch that. And we do it because I am afraid I will be judged by him. And on the other end, we don't present ourselves in need of help because we're prideful. I don't want to show people that I might not be perfect. I'll tell you right now, I'm not perfect. Anyone in here perfect? Good, I'm glad everyone's perfect. Yeah, I, we, we are people in need of help. And if the same married couple goes with no one speaking truth to them in love, and it's not a church issue, let me ask you something. When that marriage disintegrates into an adulterous affair, and ends in divorce. And the kids are in the midst of that. It very much becomes a church problem then. It greatly affects the church. Sorry, obviously, (laughs) I knew a family like this. We begged the wife to not go down the road, begged her, don't do this. From all the reasons we would, you don't want to do this to your husband. You don't want to do this to your children. But when I think about it, I could selfishly say for my own sake, do you not love us? Because we're part of the church. Because look what Paul says. For we are all members of one another. If you don't speak the truth in love, it's going to affect everyone. And it does affect the church. You have people take the husband's side. You have people take the wife's side. It takes months to work all that through. And no church growth happens in the midst of that. This is what Paul's talking about. We... Um, chalk it up to culture, chalk it up to wherever we want, we compartmentalize our life. We're not to be that way in the church. Now, I'm not saying you go and, you know, shove up to everybody and go, how are you doing in marriage? How are you doing in marriage? You know, how are you doing in marriage? You know, how are you with the kids? How are you? That's not what I'm talking about. But if you know something's going on, or maybe you're the one that's having the issues, you go to someone that you trust and love and respect in here. And you share them, listen, I got issues. I need some help. I got people, my wife's not listening to my counsel. She's listening to counsel of ungodly people. She's not mature. She's being tossed around by every wind. All the trickery of men is coming to her ear, and they're saying she's not happy. Marriage is about happiness. You need to blow, though. You need to get out of here. That's not biblical, and it won't provide growth to the church. That is what Paul is is talking about. The church cannot be the pillar and buttress of the truth when it is itself full of deceit. Can't be done. We need to put away the lying, the deceit. We need to be honest with one another and recognize that we are people in need of change. We're people in need of help. So don't hide those things. And if you know your brother is in trouble, you come alongside them and you speak the truth of God's whole counsel into their lives and you do it in a loving way. We're going to get some specifics later down the road. Hope you're taking some notes. Second, verse 26, uh, is anger. The first deadly enemy to church growth keeps us from speaking the truth in love, is deceit. The second is anger. The second is anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to uh, the devil. Be angry and do not sin. Paul is quoting Psalm 4.4. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. I have some important things to share with you about uh, anger. Anger is always a moral matter. It has been called the moral emotion. And the reason is because anger evaluates. We take something or we take someone and we put it in the balance and we say, this has been found lacking. This has been found wrong. This has displeased me. And then we respond. Anger is an emotional response to a perceived wrong. Okay, it's a perception of wrong. It may be wrong. It may not be. Our perception may be off. We're going to talk about that. But it is always an emotional response. It's never neutral. And your culture tells you today that it is. It says it's not good. It's not bad. It just is. It's something that people do. You just have to get it off your chest. So express your anger. And that's unbiblical. The essential nature of anger is to pass a moral judgment against something that we think both wrong and important. We say, I care enough about something to be moved. That's what we're saying in anger. 
I'm moved to feel strongly. I'm, I'm, I'm moved to do something about it. And so anger, by its very nature, it takes a moral position. It judges. That's what, that's what anger does. It judges. But God judges our judging. God judges our judging. He morally evaluates every single instance of anger as to whether or not, number one, we did perceive good and evil accurately. That's where it begins. Was I really wronged? Did I, did I perceive that accurately? The second thing is, did we react to the perceived right or wrong in a godly way? Let me give you some examples. I'm, uh, let's say I'm cramming to study. I'm trying to, I'm in concentration. I'm focused. And, and, and one of the kids screams outside and breaks my concentration. I yell, you know, honey, shut that stupid kid up. <laughs> Let me ask you, though. Is my perceived, um, my perception of the uh, evil accurate? No, <laughs> it was not. God looks at that and says, your perception was inaccurate. He also looks at my action on that. That also was wrong, was it not? Another example, what if um, there is uh, an adulterer in the church and I have to confront that person, won't respond, I'm emotionally tied into this thing, and so I end up uh, cursing him out and I go out and gossip about him. Now, my anger over adultery is right. That is accurate. It's accurate to be anger over that. How about my reaction to it? Ungodly. Wrong. You see what I'm saying? Both of those things have to be done accurately. We need to evaluate our anger. And that's why David says this in Psalm 4.4. That's why Paul quotes it. Meditate within your heart on your bed. That's why Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. We've got to stop. We've got to put on the brakes. And we've got to analyze our anger. Is my anger aroused by a righteous desire or an unrighteous desire? When my ultimate concern is, is self, oh, I need the peace and quiet. I need to be concentrated. I, I need to have this or I need to have that. Rather than God or rather than others, then my anger will express my selfish desires rather than desires for glory of Christ and his kingdom. Are you following me on that? So when he's talking about anger here, we have to be very careful to take the time to appraise our anger. We know the Bible talks about the unrighteous anger and the righteous anger we far too often have the unrighteous anger. We don't very often have the righteous anger. The second thing is, have we appraised our anger according to truth? Was our perception uh, accurate? Example, in the, in, in the, in the Bible, you have uh, Moses and God are both angered over the, the calf, the golden calf incident, right? Is that an accurate um, respond is that is that appropriate to be angered about that well yes the glory of of god is at stake <laughs> how about we just taught this in the, the kids ministry the other week saul's anger over the the praise that david received because of the the philistines that he defeated is that accurate no because why it's his jealousy <laughs> he's thinking about himself well, that's the praise that should go to me it's my selfish desires he has not appraised it according to truth. He's appraised it um, falsely. And as also we can act upon it wrongfully. Our actions can be wrong, as was the case in Simeon and Levi in the case of uh, Dinah's rape. They could, be, they could be angered about that, appropriately so, proper anger, wrong action. Wrong action. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And look, look what he says, he adds on this, nor give place to the devil. That's interesting, isn't it? It literally means an opportunity, an occasion for acting. If you are allowed to stew in your anger, you have literally invited the devil in. You've said, come and wreak some havoc. And uh, he's not going to turn that invitation down. Now he's going to come on in. James chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, you know these Words, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See, it's only God's anger if I'm really angered about righteous things. More often than not, I'm angered about unrighteous things. Someone cuts me off and I get mad. That just happened the other day. We were driving back from the funeral, huh? Someone was with us in the car and, and someone in front of us pulled over and the guy, you know, that was behind him kind of went, Ah! And it was just a fist. Ah! 
And we all joked, like, what is he, being a pirate? Like, what? That was the half second I was looking for. That's ridiculous, right? We just, we get angry. I don't know. But you, you allow the devil in. You invite him in. The church cannot exhibit a heart ruled by love for Christ when it really is ruled, in fact, by a love for self. That's really what he's getting at. Anger is uh, ultimately a love for self. If we have evaluated it uh, properly, then it could be righteous anger, but uh, normally that's not our problem. <laughs> normally our problem is uh, we act in unrighteous ways. The third thing is, is stealing. Look at verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Many ways this takes place. There were two times I was ripped off by Christians in the church. It's, it's, it, it, it rocked me. I got to be honest. It rocked me. I thought, what? how can this be happening? But it happens. It does. But there's many ways we do this in sneaky ways. Employees who give their employers poor service. You know, want to kind of give it to the man. Poor work time, tax evasions, customs, dodges, all those things. All those things uh, are really what he's talking about here. I like the words of Apostle Paul in Acts 20, 33 to 35. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's what Paul gets at here, doesn't he? That he may have something to give him who has need. Don't steal, rather work that you may give. Work that you may give. Boy, we, have, we live in a world that just wants to take. I want to get my hands on as much as I can. Why? We're leaving it. Believers and unbelievers alike, it's all going to get left behind. I want to take, I want to take, I want to take. And, and, and Jesus said, Paul, you give and give and give. Go work and go work hard with your hands. Why? So you can give it away. That's astounding. But will that not cause growth in the church? We see a brother and sister in need. I've been working hard that, oh, hey, we can help. Boy, that causes growth. That shows that you are loving others more than yourself, which we're commanded to do. The point here is the church must be characterized by giving and not taking. Giving and not taking. And the fourth uh, deadly enemy is corrupt words. Let no corrupt word, verse 29, proceed out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Corrupt words, literally rotten uh, words, things that will uh, tear down. But we're supposed to be using words that do the opposite, edify, build up, that it may impart grace uh, to the hearers. Now, how do you do this? This is difficult. Kevin, you just told us that we're supposed to go to people and speak the truth in love, all right? Well, we've got to be tactful about that, too. And I want to give you a few uh, pointers here about how we can speak to people in ways that will build them up, even when we're saying difficult things. Well, that's challenging, isn't it? You want to go in there and, and kick the door down and, and just start tearing people down. So if you're taking notes, one point is, is edify the receiver, the person that you're going to. You want to, you want to start by, by edifying them, right? There's something good about them. There's got to be, all right? edify them. And I'm going to give you some biblical principles, biblical scripture from Proverbs, right? When we're talking about speaking truth in love, the Bible's chock full of truth that we can be using to apply to the area of words, is it not? Proverbs 12:18, there is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. What, what in the case of, of my wife? Maybe the receiver is my wife and I need to go there and, and talk about something, right? If I start stabbing her with the, the sword and you know, picture the building again, right? If I'm chucking away at all the mortar of my wife, what's going to happen to the church? It's going to crumble. So don't, don't, don't use the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. The question you should ask is, what is my intention in sharing this? What am I, what am I trying to do here? Is it for their benefit? Is it really an expression of love and genuine concern for them? Those are questions you should ask. So again, I don't want everyone running out here and start you know, tackling people, right? 
These are prayerful, thoughtful things. We really have to take our time and think through this. What really um, is the proper way to express a love for them and a genuine concern for them? And how can I do that in a way that will not just crush them, but edify them, build them up? That is what we're here to do. Edify the receiver. Secondly, edify the relationship. You are part of that. It's not just that person, but you're part of that. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, Proverbs 15, 2. But the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. You want to use your tongue in a way that will edify both. The question I would ask is, am I seeking to mature with my brothers and sisters? To grow closer in our relationship to them? Is that what it's about? It should be. Because I don't have it all nailed down. I'm not coming to the person because uh, clearly you're less spiritual than me. So let me share with you all your faults. That's not going to get you very far, is it? That's not the attitude. I want to edify uh, the relationship. I want to be looking out for both of us. The third thing, does it glorify Christ? Proverbs twelve seventeen: he who speaks truth declares righteousness, but a false witness deceit. The question there would be, is my ambition to seek the glory for myself, to promote myself, or is it to seek the glory of God and promote him? That's what we're trying to do. So that's my, my, my words to the, the ones that are um, having to go and, and do the, the speaking. What about the ones who are receiving? What about the hearers? That's a harder place to be, isn't it? Uh, no one wants to stand there in a conversation that we don't appreciate, <laughs> right? Our, our, our fleshly motive in that moment becomes escape. Where's the exit? Like, there it is. It's alarmed. Okay, how do I get out of here? And a lot of times we'll isolate our, ourselves from people. And isolating yourself from people, that is an effective way to avoid conversation. That will, that will accomplish that. It's also an effective way to destroy the relationship and to see to it that you never grow, if that's what you're trying to do. But wise judgment would suggest that conversation and interaction with others is absolutely essential to life and to growth in the church. So my point for uh, my, my uh, instruction, I guess, would be to surrender your agenda Surrender your agenda. Proverbs 18.1, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. Whatever that is, surrender it. My brother is coming to me sincerely out of love. I can see that, and so I will surrender. Secondly, listen to learn. Listen to learn. Proverbs 25.12, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. If our heart desires growth in Christ, knowledge of what is right in God's sight, and the love of others, learning from the feedback of others should be no problem for us. If that's what we really desire. Problem is we don't really desire that sometimes, right? Again, our pride comes in. Well, what, what, what do you mean? Listen to learn. I, want to, I hear what you're saying. And I would even say, I would add on to clarify that. Clarify those things. Are you saying this? Okay, I hear it. I hear it. Right? You want to listen to learn. You don't want to like be thinking about something else. When is this conversation going to end? When is she going to shut up? I don't want to. You want to listen to learn. Thirdly, value their perspective. Remember, they're doing this out of love for you and the relationship. Value their perspective. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a, wise, a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Hmm. Honor their perspective. I can't approach that situation and go, clearly they don't have to talk what they're talking about. Clearly they don't know. I want to value what they have to say to me. Because I, I'm concerned about the growth of the church. I'm concerned about the relationship. That's what's important. So rather than being wise in your own eyes, let's, pre- let's prefer becoming uh, foolish for the sake of gaining wisdom from our brothers and sisters. I'll, I'll take that. It's a form of humility, acknowledging people and before them that we, we desperately need their insight. I, I, I met every Friday back, back home with two other pastors to do just that. <laughs> to say, where, where, what do you see in me? We would have to confess to each other um, any shortcomings in areas in our life with our wives, in areas of financial dealings, uh, in areas of uh, just the time with our family. Have we managed our time well? Have we done those things? And we challenge each other. Like, listen, you know, you've got some priorities wrong. And you've you got to listen to that. Sometimes I dreaded going to those meetings. Like, ah, I'm going to have to tell them I blew it again. <laughs> but isn't that good for us? Isn't that what the church should be doing? You know what Paul is talking about? We need to speak the truth in love. Why? That we may grow up. I don't want to be a child forever. (laughs) 
spiritually speaking, or physically speaking, for that matter. All right, let's move on. We're going to run out of time here. All right. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Interesting words he uses here. Paul has used them before. I pointed them out to you because I knew we'd see them again here. Sealed at the beginning of our salvation by whom? The Holy Spirit, right? And for the day of redemption. Again, we were redeemed in the sense I've been forgiven, but there is a day that I will be fully redeemed and glorified with Christ. He is showing us the beginning and the end of our salvation process. And what happens there in the middle? We grow in Christ-likeness. That's what, takes, that, that's what happens there. And during that time of growing in Christ's likeness, we have got to take careful uh, means to not grieve the Holy Spirit. To not grieve the Holy Spirit. Remember, we're growing into the, what do you say? Holy temple of the Lord. That would be the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Any unholiness then would grieve the Spirit, would not? Anything incompatible with the purity and unity of the church grieves him. And we're not to partake in any of those things. And then verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Quite a list there. Quite a list there. I'm just going to run through these really, really quickly. The main four ones we looked at, I I think he just sort of um, encompasses all those here and kind of rattles these these words off bitterness i mean honestly if you don't deal with your anger and you're allowed to stew in that what comes up from that a bitter root definitely not fruit but a bitter root it produces bitter fruit in your life bitterness must be done away with you wrath and anger you have the boiling hot passionate anger as well as the agitation of the soul right those can't be part of the church clamor loud quarreling outcrying Slander, evil, speaking, malice, which is just a desire to injure, a desire to seek evil in the church. Those are the ones back in verse 14 that trick people, that have cunning and crafty, deceitful plotting. That all has to be done with, doesn't belong in the church. Instead, what's he say? Be kind to one another. Tender hearted, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. The word kind that's used there, it's an interesting word that he um, uh, uses uh, there. And it's only used two times there in the New Testament. But, but uh, it's used in Luke chapter uh, 6, where uh, Jesus, again, it's the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter uh, 6, where he says um, that God is kind to the unthankful and the evil. He's kind to even unthankful and evil people. Why can't we be kind to those who are the opposite? <laughs> be kind. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, just compassionate, forgiving one another, acting in grace towards one another. Why? Because he's been acting in grace toward you. Why should we not act in grace toward one another? I, um, as we were preparing to, uh, to, move, uh, to move here, we were... Um, asking the help of a, a man to help uh, ship our, our, things, uh, our things here. And, and we insisted that, uh, you know, he had helped us before, but we insisted on, on paying for it. He had just paid for it before. And since I approached him, I said, listen, I, I want to pay for it. You know, you blessed us last time by doing that, but, I, 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 you know, we want to use you because you know how to do it. I mean, how do you get your stuff here? I don't even know how you do that stuff. But now can we, oh, yeah, you can use me. So when it came time to kind of settle up with him, I, I tried to contact him and see if I could pay. He says, no, 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 no payment necessary. I said, listen, listen, I, I came to you, man. I, let me pay. Let me, you know, pay. We've raised the money. I want to pay for you. And his response was in a text to me, and he wrote just um, three words in his text. Others and eternity. He didn't say, oh, no, it's okay. He'd say, he just put in his text, others and eternity. He said, listen, I could care less about money. I'm not going to go, yeah, you really owe me. You know, like he's, he's got his perspective. It's all about others, and it's all about eternity. That's what the, the, the church is here for. How can, I, how can I serve? How can I bless? His heart is so there, he, he's not even thinking money. He's probably annoyed, more annoyed that I'm trying to give him money, right? Will you stop texting me, all right? Okay, others and eternity, that'll shut him up. And it did. I mean, I, how do you respond to that? 
uh, 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 I don't even know what to say. Th- thanks. I, well, it's an incredible perspective, but it's a perspective that we're to have. All these things that we've talked about, deceit and, and anger and, and stealing and, and, and corrosive words, all uh, reflect a heart that is ruled by the kingdom of self. But we're to have a heart that's ruled by the kingdom of God. And that's where we've got to start. Does my heart really reflect his agenda or does it reflect mine? I'm just going to close with a quote here uh, by uh, Reverend W.F. Adeni. Herein is the true glory of the church, not in outward magnificence, but in spiritual presence. From that arises the responsibility of the church, not to defile the temple of the Holy Ghost, but to let the glory of God shine out through every door and window, unsullied by any cloud of sin. That is the church. And that's the church that Paul wants us to see. He wants to see that, you know, it's people. And when we're dealing with people, we're messy, aren't we? And we need each other. We are all people um, in need of change, and we're helping one another um, change. And so help me and help you, help me to help you, and you help me, right? That's, that's, the, that's the idea. We all need uh, one another. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you that, Lord, you speak truth in such a, a very specific way. I really thank you for the nitty-gritty details I hear about uh, anger and deceit. We are prone to all of these things. And all of these things, it's so clear that they have a tendency to cause division. They have a tendency to hinder growth uh, in the church. Um, They have a tendency to really um, defame your name. But God, you have created the church. It's clear by your word that we are here because of you. I'm not here because of anything I've done, but you've brought me here to this place, and you've brought me for a purpose. You've created me for good works, that I should walk in them. And that's really where it's difficult. It's difficult for each and every one of us to walk in the works that you've called us to do. And Lord, when we talk about growing in Christ and the challenge to speak the truth in love, we can feel so ill-equipped to do that. We may think we we need a greater knowledge. We need some kind of biblical counseling degree. We need, Lord, we just need you. We need humble hearts that are ruled by you. Hearts that truly see your church for what it is. A people in need of change. A people that have hearts that need to be completely governed by your word. And Lord, if we simply use your word to speak into the lives of others, if we are intentionally intrusive in that way, God, then we will see growth in this church. And so, Lord, we may want, uh, we may want a, a building of our own to, to be in. We may want uh, greater uh, funds. We may want all kinds of different ministries in this church. But, Lord, if we're not growing spiritually, individually, corporately in this way, then we don't deserve those things yet. So I just pray, Lord, that we would be challenged today to be a church that's committed to growing corporately and that none of us would be intentional to do anything that would hinder that growth that would see our desperate need for you we see our desperate need for one another help us to be honest help us to be open help us to be upfront about our struggles with sin because none of us have has it down we need you we need each other and we cry out for your help today for your glory We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.